Thanks for listening to this Church in the City podcast. The Great Commission has always been God's idea, and His heart has always been to seek and save the lost. In our series on the Great Commission, we're taking a close look at what it means for us, the church, to make every choice, every day, in the light of our partnership with the God who saves. Matthew 28, let's jump in right there if we can. Um, And as you're turning there, I want to start off this morning by reading this interesting quote that I found by a gentleman called Leonard Ravenhill, who was an English um, uh, uh, evangelist and uh, wrote many books on prayer and revival. And he says this, he says, no man or woman of God or church is greater than their prayer life. The church who is not praying is playing. We have seen, we have many organizers, but few agonizers. Lots of pastors, but few wrestlers. Many fears, but few tears. Much fashion, little passion. Many interferers, but few intercessors. Failing in the area of prayer, we fail everywhere. Failing in the area of prayer, we fail everywhere. Most of you know that uh, uh, our preaching series throughout 2016 has been focusing on the, on, on the relationship between the Great Commission and the Greatest Command, and specifically looking at how the Greatest Command to love God and to love others needs to or, or should be our motivation to fulfill the Great Commission. And uh, what I want to do over the next uh, a few weeks prior to the Christmas season is uh, to take the next kind of three or four Sundays to look at some practical implications of the Great Commission. Uh, James and Mark and Nate did an absolutely outstanding job kind of setting up the Great Commission series by teaching through the book of Jonah. And if you didn't hear any of those, I want to encourage you to go online and, and, and listen to, the, to, you know, to those sermons. But what I want to do over the next few weeks is kind of fill in a few gaps that I believe the Lord wants to add or encourage us with r- around the subject of the Great Commission. In two Sundays from now, next Sunday, Tyron Daniel is going to be here. Two Sundays from now, I want to teach on the Great Commission and finances. And already probably some of you are going, really? Yes, the Bible has a lot to say about our finances. So I want to look at, at, at how we are to steward our finances in the context of the Great Commission. My wife, Zen, the week after, is going to talk about the Great Commission and our relationships how the um, friends and family members and children that God has added to this body, how God wants us to steward those in the context of the Great Commission. And then the Sunday after Thanksgiving, we're going to take a few moments to listen to some of the stories from some of you, testimonies of how God has revealed his sending and saving heart to you and through you to others in our city. And we're going to have opportunities for you to come and share those particular stories. But today, what we're going to be speaking about is the Great Commission and prayer. The Great Commission and Prayer. So to make sure we're all on the same page, I ask you to turn to Matthew 28 because that is where the Great Commission is. The Great Commission is the the nickname or the phrase that is given to the last recorded words uh, of Jesus in the book of Matthew. And if you can read with me from verse 18, that will be on the screen behind me. It says this, then Jesus came to them, Matthew 28 verse 18, then Jesus came to them and he said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always 
to the very end of the age. I want to mention a couple of important things that we must remember in the context of the Great Commission. Firstly, it's important to, it's a, it's important to remember that the Great Commission has been around since Adam and Eve. It's always been God's intent that, that you and I, His people, uh, live here on earth as his ambassadors. Second Corinthians 5 teaches that. And as his, as his ambassadors, we, we live under the blessing of God. We live under his favor and his grace. And we are called to extend his kingdom, extend his reign and rule through our neighborhoods into the nations. That's the overarching kind of narrative of Scripture. It starts in Genesis 1, where Adam and Eve are commissioned as such. And it kind of comes to a a wonderful conclusion in in the book of Revelation, where where John gets this prophetic picture of, of people from every tribe and every language and every tongue standing before the throne of God in white robes, declaring salvation belongs to the Lord. And you and I are invited to be part of this great story, finding its fulfillment before the throne of God. Secondly, it's important to remember that the Great Commission flows from Jesus' authority. Jesus says, he says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. I've been, as a little aside, I've been doing a a study recently through the New Testament of looking at those absolute phrases, all and everyone, that we find in in, in the New Testament. I want to encourage you in the next few weeks as you read your Bible, keep your eyes open for the statements like, all the people in the village got healed, and God wants us to bring everyone into maturity. I think sometimes we, 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 we settle for, for some being healed or some coming through into maturity. Look out for those absolute statements in Scripture. And Jesus says one of those absolute statements. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. He's saying that he is the one who is exalted to the highest place. He's reminding us that he is the one who, who, who has the name above every name. He's, he, he's saying to us that, 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 that he is the one who sustains all things by his powerful word. That he is the one called faithful and true and the king of kings and the lord of lords. Could I suggest that if, if Jesus is saying that he is the king of kings and the lord of lords, then any commission that comes from a lesser lord or lesser king needs to be subservient to the Great Commission. The Great Commission is what the King of Kings has declared over you and I. I don't think this is an optional extra that we get to choose whether we do or not. Thirdly, it's important to remember that Jesus commissioned a community, not a group of individuals. And this is particularly true, I think, in our day and age, where I'm sure you guys know that that as a culture, we face what some have termed termed rampant individualism and independence. And and I think you guys know that it is having an effect on the church. It's very, the way most of the West lives is very different to what Scripture teaches about community and finding identity together in the presence of the Lord. I've been spending probably the last six months or so thinking through one verse in Ephesians chapter 3, Ephesians 3 verse 10, which I just want to read, and I, and I think it provides a, an important reminder to us that God is calling us together as a church to advance his kingdom. Ephesians 3 verse 10 says this, God's intent was that now, 
through the church. Can I say there is no better time for the purposes of God to be outworked through the church than now. No matter what the governments are throwing at us, no matter what culture is throwing at us, it is now, it's always been God's plan through the church, the manifold wisdom of God, the multivaried, the multifaceted wisdom of God being made known to the principalities and powers. The church is like a prism. A prism takes perfect white light and as the white light passes through that prism, it divides up into its component colors. And that's exactly what the church is like. The church, Jesus pours out his, his perfect love and his perfect holiness upon the church. And, and through our, our unique giftings and unique passions and unique dreams and desires, God, God's perfect grace is broken up into its component colors. And we begin to display the manifold wisdom of God, not just to the earth, friends, but to principalities and powers. This is of cosmic importance. God says to Israel in Deuteronomy 4, if if you follow my way, you will display my glory to the nations. God is saying to us in Ephesians 3, if you follow my way, you will display my glory to to, to the universe, to principalities and powers. It's important to remember that the emphasis of the Great Commission is on making disciples. Jesus says, go, go and make disciples. And can I say, friends, disciples are not just followers of Jesus. Disciples are those who are intimately connected with Jesus. And the characteristic of discipleship is baptism and obedience. Don't forget, obedience is a, is a, is a, is a word that brings about nervousness in today's day and age. Obe- the context for obedience in Scripture is always relationship. Always relationship. And then lastly, and perhaps... Most importantly, and this is where I want to launch off into our discussion on prayer, we must remember that the Great Commission is about the presence of God. We are called to make disciples, but we mustn't forget that we are disciples ourselves. We are those who who live under the presence of God. We are under the favor of God. We are those who live in closeness to Jesus. We are those who ourselves are being shaped and formed and maturing into the likeness of Christ. And so what discipleship is, friends, is nothing more than multiplication. It's simply saying what I have, what I'm enjoying, the presence of God, the access to God's closeness, I want others to enjoy as well. That's what That's what the Great Commission is about. And to that end, Jesus says this, and surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. The way God has chosen to make himself known is through his presence being accessible and tangible. Let me say that again. I want you to think about this. The way God has chosen to make himself known and in doing that to draw people to himself is not through learning about facts about God, information about God, but God making his presence accessible and tangible. I think Exodus 3 kind of is the preeminent passage that deals with this particular truth. Moses is, uh, most of you are familiar, Moses is called by God through an experience of seeing a a burning bush and and God begins to speak his plan and purpose over Moses, calling him to to lead Israel out of slavery uh, uh, from Egypt. And and, and Moses in his nervousness to go says, says, God, who are you that is sending me? Who must I say is the one that is is speaking this, this over me, calling us to do this. And God reveals himself for the very first time in scripture 
as I am who I am. And then essentially what he says to Moses is, Moses, I'm going to show you what that name means by acting with power into history. I'm going to allow heaven to invade the context of earth in power. And in doing so, I'm going to reveal myself to you and to the people of God. And friends, I believe that is the starting point of what God is still doing throughout, does throughout scripture and is throughout church history and today. God is revealing his character and his nature to us through the unique and varied uh, and, and multiple ways that he invades our lives and people's lives with his presence, making himself known and, doing, and, and in doing so, drawing people to himself. Think for a moment of those incredible gospel stories that we read about, of people coming to know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. And the varied ways that that happens. Think of the, the man who is paralyzed and is brought by his friends into that crowded house. I think it's in Matthew chapter 9. And Jesus looks at his friends and he says to the man, because of your, the faith of your friends, you are healed and your sins are forgiven. Contrast that story with the accounts of Zacchaeus, the, the the tax collector, the corrupt tax collector, who gives away half his fortune and then Jesus says in response, today salvation has come to your house. Or think of the sinful woman. I think it's in Luke chapter nine or Luke chapter seven. Some say she's a prostitute who, who is weeping in the presence of Jesus and begins to wash Jesus' feet with the tears and, dry, and she dries his feet with her hair. Imagine if that was a prerequisite for salvation. James would never make it into the kingdom of God. I mean, so, so think about... Sorry, I, couldn't, I just thought of that when I couldn't resist it. <laughs> think about, think about the, 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 Mark Rinkosiak is probably not too far either. Think about the, the, the varied ways that, that, that Jesus makes himself known by, by revealing his presence to his people. Think about the book of Acts and the, and, the, and the outpouring of the Holy Spirit upon the early church. Peter in chapter 2, preaching the gospel to thousands, so much so that the, gospel, that the Spirit of God is poured out and people are cut to the heart. Contrast that to, to, to Acts chapter 9, where, where Paul is on the road to Damascus, and as a single individual, he encounters Jesus, varied in different ways. Think about your salvation stories. If I asked five of you to stand up, I guarantee every single one of you would have a different encounter of how you came to know God by experiencing his presence. Some of you probably more jarring, kind of radical, quote unquote radical salvation, almost like, like what it's like if you're a parent, you'll know exactly what I mean, what it's like when you wake up with a start as a child begins to, to scream, or my son standing over my bed at 4.54 this morning because he couldn't sleep because of daylight savings. You know what that parents know exactly what that's like, jarring, a jarring awake. Some of you here, who, who, uh, your salvation story is, is more like the, 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 the slow waking up that some of you enjoy who don't have kids and who can take 45 minutes or an hour to kind of arise yourself from, from slumber. But, but friends, whether it's, a, whether it's a jarring salvation story or a, or a kind of God beginning to woo you, the, the, the truth is the same. You were dead in your sins, and because of God's great love, he has made you alive in Jesus Christ. Varied stories. God never works according to a formula. 
But can I say, can I suggest there is one common factor in every single one of these stories that we read about in Scripture and every single one of your salvation stories? And that common factor is God's people somewhere in the background. God's people humbling themselves and crying out to God in prayer on behalf of you and on behalf of others who did not know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. Jim Simbler, who leads the Brooklyn Tabernacle and is probably known for prayer more than anything else, writes this, I have discovered an astonishing truth. God is attracted to weakness. He cannot resist those who humbly and honestly admit how desperately they need him, whether praying for themselves or praying for others. The Bible is full of incredible stories, uh, 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 examples of, of men and women of God who have cried out to, to their Lord and Savior on behalf of others. Exodus 33, as Moses is leading Israel into their inheritance. Daniel chapter 9, as he's crying out to God for God to save Israel from, from exile. Nehemiah chapter 1, as Nehemiah gets, gets wind of, of, of you know, of the destruction of God's people. Acts chapter four, James you know, uh, spoke about it this morning at the prayer meeting. Acts chapter four, God's people gathering together in the face of, of persecution. And so using these as examples, the question I wanna ask and answer as we have the last few moments together this morning is this. What does the Bible, or how does the Bible teach us to pray if we wanna see the Great Commission fulfilled? How does the Bible teach us to pray if we wanna see the Great Commission fulfilled? I've got four things, I'm, I'm nervous to say kind of characteristics, and I, and I certainly don't want it to come across like a method, uh, um, but four truths, four things that I've pulled out of Scripture that are, are ways that we are called to, to pray if we are to see the Great Commission fulfilled. But before we get there, I want to make one thing very clear, and this is perhaps, if you take one thing home today, take this truth home. Prayer is about relationship. Prayer is about relationship. J.R. Packer writes this. He says, prayer, like every good marriage, has in it common factors about which one can generalize, but also uniquenesses which no other Christian's prayer life will quite match. And friends, can I just say, that's probably one of the, the, the reasons uh, th- that, that gives me greatest concern in the culture that we live in today, where there is such an excess of resources available to the Christian today. We can, we can pick up a book at a bookstore about any subject. We can go online and within five minutes have downloaded 10 sermons about any subject. But the challenge is we're, we're overstimulated and we're probably underfed by the presence of God. You are you, and I am me, and we must each, this is J.R. Packer, we must each find our own way with God. And there is no recipe for prayer that can work like a handyman's do-it-yourself manual or cookery book, where the claim is, if you follow the instructions, you can't go wrong. And I've tried to bake before, and that's an absolute lie. Praying is not like carpentry or baking. It is the active exercise of a personal relationship, a friendship with the living God through his son, Jesus Christ. Books or sermons on prayer, and this sermon on prayer, can I say, like marriage, for example, are not to be treated with slavish superstition, as if perfection of technique is the answer to all difficulties. 
I heard someone once say, the problem with all the books written on marriage is no one, none of the authors are married to my wife. And it's, and it's true for prayer as well. All the great books written on prayer are, are suggestions, but friends, that we cannot apply them, as, as J.R. Packer says, as slavish superstition looking for a formula. But as in other intimate relationships, so in prayer, you have to find out by trial and error what is right for you, and you learn to pray by praying. Some talk more, others less. Some are constantly vocal. Others cultivate silence before God as their way of worship. Some pray in tongues often, others don't. The only rule is this. As with any relationship, time together is most important. And friends, can I just say, as we're talking about the context of relationship, not only is prayer, not only is it important to mention our relationship with God when we speak about prayer, but can I say, we mustn't forget the people that we are praying for who don't know Jesus. Believe it or not, they have a relationship with God too. We might not see it. They certainly don't know it. And yes, it hasn't reached its fulfillment in, in, in Christ yet. But God is uniquely and specifically working already in the lives of the people that don't know him as Lord and Savior. He's ministering through their dreams and aspirations. He's challenging them in the area of their fears and, and their shortcomings. And friends, we, I say that because that needs to shape the way that we pray. When we're praying for the lost, the most important question that we can ask God is what are you already doing in their life? Because God has a relationship with them already. And can I say, we also need to be asking God, how can I engage that person very relationally? Because we don't ever want the loss to become our project. We don't ever want the loss to become just a con- the idea of the kingdom of God advancing, just a concept or an idea. If we're not prepared to engage people at the place of their fears and shortcomings or victories and successes and passions, all we are doing is making the kingdom of God a concept and not a practical reality. Every single moment that we have with our friends, no matter how mundane and ordinary it is, is an opportunity for God to break in supernaturally. Why? Because Jesus is always with us. And we need to pray with that in mind. Listening as much as talking. And so let's jump in quickly as we finish. How does the Bible teach us to pray if we hope to see the Great Commission fulfilled? Very practical, last couple minutes. Number one, we need to pray with the kingdom in mind. We need to pray with the kingdom in mind. There's nothing wrong. Jesus, in fact, teaches us at times to pray, Lord, uh, uh, um, uh, uh, I ask for your daily bread. Uh, my mind's blanking. Uh, help me quickly. Um, give us today our daily bread. Thank you. I just blanked on the Lord's prayer. That's quite embarrassing for a pastor. Um, <laughs> there are times when Jesus does encourage us to, to pray, Lord, give us today our daily bread. Nothing wrong with that. But in the context of the Great Commission, what we need to focus on is, Lord, let your kingdom come. What that means is simply this, the kingdom of God, his, his reign and his rule, which is characterized by, by righteousness, right standing with God and and peace, as Dirk, is Dirk here today? I don't think he is, but, but as Dirk loves to say, shalom. The, 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 not just the peace as in I have peaceful feelings about God. Peace speaks about wholeness that comes by the Holy Spirit. Joy. Let me tell you, friends, we live in a, in a day and an age where we, the world is desperate for a reason to be joyful. 
And so if the kingdom of God is righteousness and peace and joy, then simply what we, when, when we say we pray with the kingdom in mind is, is we want that to invade this so that, so that the kingdom of God can come out of me and, and others can experience it too. That's what it means to pray with the kingdom in mind. That others would experience Christ's righteousness. That they would experience wholeness and intimacy with God that releases peace no matter what they're experiencing. That there would be reason beyond the tangible for joy in this world. When we pray with the kingdom in mind, we, we pray with humility. The kingdom of God speaks about the king, which is Jesus. And I can't think of, of one characteristic that is greater than the characteristic of humility as a response to being in the presence of King Jesus. Because I realize that what he has done in my life. Friends, when you read the scriptures about prayer, most of the time the people of God are declaring who God is more than they are about asking God to do things. Most of the time prayer is about God, you are amazing. God, you are great. God, you are, you are awesome. And then in response to that, Lord, because you are great, would you move in great power? That's why worship and prayer is, is so important. When we pray with the kingdom in mind, we begin to pray for the church, the people of God to flourish. I say that not because the church is the kingdom. The church is not the kingdom of God. We are not here to advance the name of a church. We are here to advance the kingdom of God. But God has chosen the church to, the, to be the vehicle through which the kingdom advances. And so we need to pray for God's people to flourish so they can advance the kingdom. And finally, when we pray with the kingdom in mind, we pray that God's glory would be made known. This is a prayer I pray all the time for church in the city. And God's just been reminding me of that again recently. One of the things, and I invite you, could I invite you perhaps to join me in praying this, that church in the city, above all else, would be the, a place where people can encounter Jesus. I don't want church in the city to be known for great preaching. I don't want church in the city to be known for amazing worship. And I trust we do have good preaching and we certainly do have amazing worship. I don't want church in the city to be known because we do family well, although we must. I want church in the city to be known because people can encounter Jesus Christ. How does the Bible teach us to pray if we hope to see the Great Commission fulfilled? Secondly, we need to pray boldly. We need to pray boldly and courageously. Genesis chapter four, this is a fascinating verse. Right at the end of Genesis chapter four, it says this. At that time, people began to call on the name of the Lord. At that time, people began to call on the name of the Lord. You guys probably know, but someone's name represents their character or their nature. They began, prayer is an opportunity for us to call on God as he has revealed himself. You can't call on somebody if you don't know that person's name. We can't call on God as healer if we don't know him to be healer. Not only is prayer an opportunity to call on God as he has revealed himself, but prayer is an opportunity to partner with God to see his revealed will fulfilled. God, prayer is an opportunity for us to partner with God to see his revealed will fulfilled. Let me give an example. Daniel chapter 9. Israel are in exile in the nation of Babylon. Daniel is reading the prophet Jeremiah. And he sees a prophecy that says that Israel will be exiled for 75 years. 
As it turns out, Daniel is reading this, prof- this particular prophecy in year 68, and he realizes that there are only uh, seven more years to go until Israel is, is released, as according to the prophet uh, uh, of Jeremiah. And so what does Daniel do? He doesn't sit back and say, great, God's revealed his will. We can sit back and wait for him to act. No, Daniel chapter 9 verse 3 says this, so I turned to the Lord and pleaded with him in prayer and petition. Prayer is partnering with God to see his will done. So when you're trusting for God to break through in the area of provision, unless you know God is provider, you can't with faith ask him to provide. We know that God is provider, how? By reading his word and by remembering the times that God has invaded and provided in the past. Friends, if you're struggling for finances and God provides you the thousand dollars that you are trusting for, could I suggest to you that the important issue is not the thousand dollars that you are trusting for, but that God has revealed himself to you as provider. Because there's going to come a time in the future where you need to trust God in the way that he revealed himself then. So don't just look to the practical, tangible ways that God moves. Look to the way he is revealing his character and nature. Because that's what we need to stand on in prayer. The way God has revealed himself. So how does that apply to the Great Commission? Most of you sitting here are saved. Most of you sitting here have responded to the gospel. Most of you have a personal revelation that God is gracious and compassionate and slow to anger and abounding in faithfulness and love. Most of you are the, are, are the, are the fulfillment of, of promises in Scripture that says that it is God's heart and desire to see everyone saved. You have a personal revelation of that. And so, friends, when it comes to praying for our friends who don't know Jesus, we can pray with boldness because we know that God is both willing and able to save everybody. And that's how we should pray. Knowing God's will and his character is an invitation for us to call on him as he has revealed himself. And I would suggest anything less is just superstition. How does the Bible teach us to pray if we hope to see the Great Commission fulfilled? Thirdly, we're nearly finished. We need to pray persistently. We need to be tenacious in our praying. Isaiah 62 verse 6 and 7 says this, I have posted watchmen on your walls, O Jerusalem. They will never be silent day or night. You, will, you who call on the Lord, give yourself no rest and give him no rest until he establishes Jerusalem and makes her the praise of the earth. Martin Lloyd-Jones says that we should bombard heaven with prayer until the answer comes. I am so challenged by the story of, of uh, in First in, in Kings 18, Elijah and, and praying for, for God to break the drought. Uh, you, some of you are familiar with the story. Uh, Elijah prays to the Lord that the drought would break and, and, and he sends his servant out onto the mountaintop to look to see if there's a cloud. And the servant comes back and he says, I'm sorry, master, there is no cloud. And so what does Elijah do? He prays again and sends the servant out and he comes back with, 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 with no sighting of a cloud. Seven times he sends him back. Seven times he prays until the servant comes back and he says, I see a cloud the size of a man's fist. I've asked myself the question, what would have happened if Elijah had stopped after six times? Because I know that's sometimes me. I know I've been the man at times 
who stopped after six times and given up because I haven't seen the breakthrough. We need to be those who bombard heaven with prayer until the breakthrough comes. Uh, comes. Jesus teaches perseverance. Luke chapter 11 and Luke chapter 18 are two parables, and it starts off like this. Jesus taught his disciples they should always pray and not give up. Why? Because we have the propensity to give up. We need to pray with with persistence. And and guys, I just want to say, as I've prepared this sermon, I actually didn't include these two points initially in my first draft because I don't feel like, I feel like I've dropped the ball in this area recently. The area of bold prayer and persistent prayer. I've been challenged this week that I have grown a little bit comfortable with church in the city having etched out its kind of unique place in the, in the, in the, in the church landscape in, in Chicago. And, and I just, I realize God, and I don't say this with, this with arrogance, I say this with absolute humility. God did not call us to come to this, to this country and to come to the city to etch out our place in the Chicago church landscape. God called us, God called, has called this church to make an impact in our city and the nations. And he has done amazing things, but let me tell you, there is more to come. And we, and by we, I mean myself too, need to be those that are reminded to pray boldly and to pray persistently. I end off with this. How does the Bible teach us to pray if we hope to see the Great Commission fulfilled? We are called to pray with each other in community. Acts chapter four. I love Acts chapter four. It says, in response to the persecution that came upon the church, they raised their voices together in prayer. They raised their voices together in prayer. Most anthropologists agree, I found this interesting, most anthropologists agree that true community develops in the context of danger or in the face of overwhelming odds or an overwhelming task. There is a unique experience of togetherness when people band together around a common vision of a better place and together they do something about it. Friends, you and I sitting in in, in these chairs today, every one of us are facing overwhelming tasks and overwhelming odds. And it's it's the better future that you see for your friends and family in God. But you're you're struggling with their indifference to it. You know what I'm talking about. You guys have friends and family just like I, where you know, you sense God has a call on their life, but they are so indifferent to, to, to the gospel right now. Those are the overwhelming odds, friends, and we are called to, to, to fight this fight together, to trust that God's preferred future for our friends and family, that God's preferred future for our city would come to pass. And the role that we play is that we are called to pray together. Can I just say that we shouldn't take our, our, uh, our answers from anthropologists. As good as that example was, I hope. We take our answer from scripture, Matthew 18, where two or more are gathered together. God says, I will be there. Do you know how many times people use that verse in an apologetic fashion? You know when we've got like a, a church of, let's say, 400 and then maybe 15 arrive? at prayer meeting, and then the guy will stand up and say, well, you know, where two or more are gathered in Jesus' name, he says that he will be there. We are so apologetic about that verse, and I am too, and I want to say no. It just takes two people to come together in unity in Jesus' name, and Jesus says, I will be there, and when Jesus is there, great things can happen. 
So let's not be apologetic about your small group being two or three people. When you, when you are guys are there in a small group or at a coffee shop or at a Wednesday night prayer meeting, Jesus is present where two or three or more are gathered in his name. I want to challenge you guys to come out to our prayer meeting on Wednesday nights. We pray first three Wednesdays of every month, 6.30 to 7.30 for an hour. I want to challenge you to make time to join us. I love the results, verse 31. And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken and they were filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. Friends, when, when God's people gather together in prayer, things happen. Things happen. Prayer comes from God. I don't know who wrote this, but I love this. Friend, uh, prayer comes from God and it ascends back to God on behalf of those who don't know God. That's a great definition of intercession. And friends, that's what church in the city is called to do. God has placed the, the, the calling of intercession upon this church from the day it was birthed. There were, there were men and women praying for this church before Debs and I even knew where Chicago was on the map. God has birthed intercession into this church, that we would be a people that would receive the burden of God from God, and that we would turn that burden back to God in prayer on behalf of those who do not know him. There's a definition for intercession behind me. Intercession is standing in the gap between the need we see and the provision or the move of God that we long to see. I close with this challenge. I want to ask each of you to join me in praying for those who are in the valley of decision so that we could see them ascend to the mountain of God's presence. That we would cry out to God on behalf of those who are found in the valley of decision and that we would trust to see them ascending to the mountain of God's presence. I don't know how to close this morning. There's not necessarily, and this is James's job, I guess, that he gets, to, he gets to close this morning. There's not necessarily a ministry response. I think, I think, I trust that you will go from this place and that you will begin to seriously consider how you can put this into practice. The Bible says that we are not blessed by hearing the word, but we are blessed by hearing and doing it. And I hope I haven't been prescriptive in the sense of putting anything on people, but I hope I've challenged you sufficiently by the Holy Spirit to challenge all of us to say, God, what is our response? And maybe, maybe we can actually respond this way. The disciples in the gospel say, say, say to Jesus, Jesus, teach me to pray. Teach me to pray. Jesus is still teaching us how to pray. I am sure, and in fact, I know this to be true. There is not one person sitting in this room whose prayer life is fully matured. Every one of us has still got something to learn about prayer. So maybe before I hand over to James, would you pray with me? That, that we, simply to say, Jesus, would you teach us to be a people of prayer? Can you do that today, this morning? Let's just close our eyes and respond to the Lord. Lord, thank you for what you are doing this morning, what you have done through the worship for Brittany's amazing word, Lord, that reminded us that you are the God who is able to move mountains. And thank you, Lord God, for reminding us too that, 
that, that, that we can trust and put our hope and faith in you because you are the name, you, Jesus, you, you, are, you have the name that is above every name and that you are the Lord of lords and the King of kings. But we ask, to, that we ask this morning, Jesus, that you would help us in our prayer life. I ask for myself, I ask on behalf of others who are crying out to you right now, Jesus, would you teach us to pray? Would you teach us to pray? Thank you for the, the quotes and the books that have been written and even the sermons that have been preached, including this one. But Lord Jesus, we want you to teach us how to pray. We want to ask for your uh, uh, heart in prayer as well. James and the, the guys who preached on, on Jonah reminded us that God, it's, prayer is not just something for, for us to do, but it is, it is an opportunity for you to impart your heart to us. You don't want us to fulfill the Great Commission as a, as a checklist. You want us to fulfill the Great Commission because we have a burden for our city and we have a burden for the nations. Lord, teach us to pray with compassion. Teach us to pray with boldness. Teach us to pray with tenacity and perseverance. Forgive us, Lord, where we've given up. Forgive us, Lord, where we've thrown in the towel. Forgive us, Lord, where we haven't seen breakthrough and, and so we've walked away thinking that it's not your will. Father, we don't understand why sometimes it does take, take some time. But Lord God, help us to be tenacious as we pray. Help us to be persevering as we pray. Help us to not just be a hundred yard sprinters, but help us to be marathon runners, Lord, in the area of prayer. Willing to, to push through those difficult times and travail until we see breakthrough. Most of all, Lord God, help us to pray as intercessors to pray for those who do not know you as Lord and Savior, to pray, Lord God, for your preferred future for our friends and family to come to pass, to pray, Lord God, for the, for the, for the outpouring of your spirit upon our city like never before. Jesus, we, we are desperate for, for your presence to fall in dramatic and powerful ways. We are desperate, Lord God, to see our city, just like it, it describes in Acts chapter 8, uh, uh, the, the city uh, experiencing great joy because the Spirit of God moved in, in great power. People being healed and delivered. The gospel being preached with boldness. Lord God, let those not just be stories that we read in the book of Acts, but let them be encounters that we would see in our day and in our age. Thank you, Lord. This is not just a, a, a book of, of stories from the past. But Lord, there are testimonies of how you have encountered people with your presence. And that's what we ask for. Lord, make us aware of your presence. Make us aware of what you're saying and doing. Make us aware, Lord God, of, of, of the fact that you are already with us. And that our response, Lord, would be to yield more of ourselves over to all of you. Thank you, Jesus, that you haven't just given us a little bit of the Holy Spirit. Thank you that you can't give the Holy Spirit in degrees, Jesus. Thank you that you've poured out the Spirit of God in its fullness. But help us to receive him in that way. We love you, Lord. Change our hearts. Burden our hearts with a passion for prayer. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks again for listening. To listen to other messages or for more information, visit churchinthecity.us.